optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen a perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss staring out through my window at the eucalyptus trees swaying in the breeze. But that's enough poetry for this episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. The Tim Ferriss Show, of course, like every other episode, is intended to help you deconstruct excellence, world-class performers, to pull out the tricks, routines, habits, books, etc., that you can use, you can emulate to improve results in your own life. And guests vary from hedge fund traders to, that doesn't make any sense at all, hedge fund managers to top-performing angel investors to people like Arnold Schwarzenegger on the celebrity front, chess prodigies. And in this case, we have not only a chef, but a a chef plus policymaker plus would-be professional athlete. His name is Sam Cass. Sam is a fascinating guy. He went from getting a history major at UChicago. Before that, he was on the professional baseball track, then became private chef for the Obamas, and then ended up 
the senior policy advisor for nutrition at the White House. Uh, he ran or helped to run as executive director the Let's Move campaign, which used private sector partnerships to pursue the goal of reducing childhood obesity to just 5% by 2030. And for that, he was named number 11 on Fast Company Magazine's 2011 list of the 100 most creative people. And it's such a multifaceted story. Sam is a, a hilarious storyteller, and there are a lot of really concrete takeaways. The book that he could not recall offhand in this episode is A History of World Agriculture by Marcel Mazoyer and Lawrence Rudar, or Rudart, R-O-U-D-A-R-T. So in addition to the Art of Fielding, Ottolenghi's books, and some of the others that he mentioned, there you have it, A History of World Agriculture. So now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation and our conversation with Sam Cass. Sam, welcome to the show. So good to be here, man. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interview that I've been really looking forward to, and I am very, very hopped up on caffeine. This is, a, this is a, an Amish morning for me. I know this is <laughs> – I'm usually a 10 a.m., 11 a.m. kind of guy because I'm a night owl. And uh, <laughs> so I'm going to jump into some morning questions in a second, but I wanted to first congratulate you on the James Beard Foundation, the Leadership Awards. Oh, thank you. Uh, that yeah, that means a lot. It's uh, James Beard has been an incredible uh, organization. I mean, they are like the 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 they're like the you know the Oscars for chefs, and but they've taken up a lot of the important issues around food and nutrition and health and sustainability. So they have a, a an award for that, and and yeah, it's a great honor. I'm excited. Yeah. It, uh, so for those who don't know, the, the leadership awards, and this is. Uh, from their website, quote, recognize specific outstanding initiatives as well as bodies of work and lifetime achievement. So that's, that's a hell of a tagline. And uh, we're going to get into all that. But first, a very important question. Uh, eggs. How do you eggs. prefer to make eggs in the morning? <laughs> so actually, I've been eating a lot of eggs uh, these days. And, you know, the eggs are one of the hardest things to cook. Some of the great chefs in the world, they're actually their test for a new cook would be how to make a, an omelet would be like their one master test. So I actually like eggs always, almost always soft though. So either a soft boiled egg, I'll do eggs over easy or really soft scrambled eggs. Um, and I guess the, the, the trick for soft scrambled eggs is I, uh, you know, after you get your butter nice and hot, I crack the eggs straight into the pan, let them cook for a second and then mix them up. And then before you think they're done, take them out because they'll harden a little bit as, as they sit on the plate. Um, but I'll, I'll eat eggs pretty much any, any way. And do you, are you a tea guy, a coffee guy? None of the above? Uh, uh, both, all of the above. I do, uh, I'll do coffee in the morning, a little half and half, and then, uh, either a little coffee in the midday or tea. And then I'll, I'll definitely have some tea at night. Um, some chamomile tea or mint tea or something, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, I drink them both. How do you, do you have any particular... Like, uh, do you have any particular type of coffee or way of, of prepping or is it just, you know what, just treat it as fuel, whatever will get me through the day? Mm, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm like one of those coffee like lunatics who like, you know, is wild, you know, about every specific thing and talks about it like wine. But I appreciate a good cup of coffee and I really, one of my least favorite things is a terrible cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, I, I can't, I can't drink it. So I'm a big Stumptown guy, you know, Blue Bottle does a great cup of coffee. Um, there's, there's some really good coffee out there. So I do French press in the morning, real simple, some half and half. Um, 
nothing, nothing crazy. What does the, well, actually I'm going to ask the, the morning routine question a little bit later on, but you mentioned, uh, coffee snobs and this is kind of a good segue because you live in Brooklyn, but you came from a town that is actually really well known for coffee these days, which is Chicago. Yeah. And, um, correct me if I'm wrong. I could uh, get some of my bio incorrect, but you grew up with parents who were both teachers. Is that correct? Uh, my dad's a teacher, um, was growing up. Well, he was actually, uh, he worked in the Ford factory when I was very young and then he, tra- then he changed jobs to become a, a teacher. And my mom has been in education, like science education stuff, but more from like museums and now she's at the National Science Foundation. So, um, but lots of teachers. My uncle are teachers, my cousins are teachers, and my sister's a teacher. So I, I am, we come from, I come from a, an educational family. What was, uh, what was that like growing up? I mean, how did that impact you or affect you? Um, <laughs> I, I, it probably was more how I pushed back against it than how it, it – that, that was probably the, the strongest influence. I wanted to be a professional baseball player from the time I was like three all the way through college, to be honest. And uh, I went to junior college trying to make it to the major league. So I, I you know, as my parents pleaded with me to, to dig into the books and hit them harder, all I wanted to do was take batting practice and, and, and you know, go after some fly balls. So – uh, it came back to me uh, when I when I transferred in college and and then beyond. Did uh, the uh, do you have brothers and sisters? I have a younger sister who's still in Chicago. Got it. And you ultimately in college ended up at U Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what what drew you to baseball? Why did you Why did you play baseball? Um, so I love I love baseball for a number of reasons. One, it is so hard. I mean, if you if you are successful. 30% of the time for your whole career, you'll be a Hall of Famer. That means if you fail 7 out of 10 times, you're one of the greatest players in the history of the game. And so that constant challenge and constant challenge to get better, something that you know always really drew me. It's also, you know, it's a team sport, so you have the camaraderie um, that is, you know, really powerful in those bonds with, with, with your teammates. But it's, it's also an, uh, an utterly individual sport. So unlike, you know, soccer, basketball, where if you're having a bad game, you kind of blend in. If you make an error in baseball or you strike out with the bases loaded, everybody knows, like, you messed up. And so you really have to take account, you know, responsibility and you're held accountable for your actions. And I think that those kind of lessons of, of discipline, hard work, but also accountability and learning how to fail – and even if you failed five times in a row, that sixth time you get a shot at it, maybe the most important time can win the game. And how do you mentally prepare yourself to walk into that moment clear-headed and, and not carrying the baggage from those previous failures, which could you know, impede your ability to be successful when it mattered? Like Those are the kind of things that I just loved about baseball, and, and it really served me well uh, in, in all other aspects of life. And you had a, you had a very good... Batting average, I, I believe it, it's. Uh, it, I have read that it was ranked among the best in program history at uh, University of Chicago. Is that accurate? Um, yeah, I haven't checked recently. I'm sure some of the younger guys have, have have taken over. When I left, I think I was number three. But you know, it was wasn't the you know we were at UFC for the education, not 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 uh, the baseball. But we had a very good team. Um, you know, I played two years of junior college baseball just trying to get drafted where basically all, all I did was play ball, uh, six, six hours a day, seven days a week, literally. And, uh, sprint training in the morning, like, you know, it was, that's all we did. So UFC was a little different. It was, uh, two hours a day, five days a week. And I'll never forget the first practice when coach 
outlined our schedule and said that on Thursdays we didn't practice because we had science labs, I just almost like passed out. I didn't even know what, what he was talking, <laughs> talking about. <laughs> science labs, not baseball. So it was, a, it was an adjustment for me. Uh, but, uh, but it was one of the greatest things. Probably the best decision I've ever made was to go there. And, well, like you said, I mean, if you go to, say, Iowa for wrestling, I mean, wrestling is your career in college uh, academics are secondary, but at UChicago, you have obviously a very strenuous academic program. What did you do that other players didn't do that allowed you to not only make it through UChicago and the academics, but to have that high a batting average or that good a batting average? Um, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure I know a definitive answer to that. I mean, I had come from such a rigorous baseball background um, where a lot of the other guys were, you know, came for, you know, were sort of playing baseball secondarily that, um, you know, that part came really easy to me. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the part that was a real adjustment that I could learn from them was like how to really hit the books in a way that I had never had to hit the books before. And how do you organize all that classwork? And, you know, the expectation is you're supposed to read like five books a week. I mean, I mean, that was like absurd to me. Uh, going in. So, you know, uh, I learned from them about how to balance that side of it. And from my side, um, you know, I think the discipline and how do you efficiently use your time, both in the, you know, in the gym, in batting practice, like how do you make the most of what you're, you know, what you're trying to get out of it, um, I think was something that I could bring, you know, to the guys and, and was able to be successful on both sides. And, and the, 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 the major you ended up choosing was history. Did, was that a, was that an immediate choice? Did you know you wanted to do history? How did you arrive at that? Um, you know, I looked I looked at a couple other majors, um, uh, but I arrived at history because you know at the time there's a lot of things swirling in politics. There's a lot of you know there's a lot of work. There's like you know the, the first Gulf War, and there's a lot of things going on that that I was paying attention to that I didn't really understand what was happening, uh, and um, and I and I realized that if I wanted to understand the world around me and politics and, and everything that was happening, having a, a, a much better grasp on, on, on history and where these things have come from was going to help me. And I think that, that really propelled me to, to focus in on history, which, which I love. I'm a, I'm a history geek. Do you have any favorite history books or biographies? Oh man, that's so tough. <laughs> that's so tough. I don't know if I have one. I'll tell you, like, I, I, I like some obscure ones, and I gotta get to the author, but there's like, there's a history of agriculture book that completely changed my perspective, and it's kind of boring, but when you look at, you know, if you're a geek and you look at, like, the impact of simple tools have had on our society, the transformational shifts, like, we forget how fundamental that stuff is. So, I'll get back to you on that. There's so many great biographies and great history books. Cool. Yeah, the, the, uh, I'll put the, the title of the book and so on in the show notes. So we'll, oh. we'll come back to that. All right. uh, how did you then, this is kind of the missing piece in the, the Sam cast puzzle that I haven't uh, immediately been able to figure out. How did you go then from majoring in history at UChicago to food? How mm. did you become interested in food? So I had always um, sort of loved food, you know, as a kid, I kind of liked to cook, um, but I had no notion of ever, you know, f pursuing it professionally in, in any way. Um, and when I was at UFC, my friend uh, was a sous chef at this restaurant in, in, uh, in Chicago. And I, 
I, I didn't know him super well, but I said, oh, you know, one day, you know, I think I'll go to culinary school when I'm old and just so I can learn how to cook for like my kids and wife whenever they decide to show up. And he was like, you know, well, don't do that. Just come in and hang out at the restaurant, see what you think. So I went in, it was like an Italian American uh, spot in Chicago. Nothing, you know, nice place, nothing too fancy. And, um, and I loved it. And so I ended up just showing up and like, you know, scrubbing potatoes and hanging out and trying to learn some things. And the chef uh, said, well, if you're going to keep showing up, I guess I got to pay you. <laughs> uh, so I, so he did, but I mean, it was pretty much an unmitigated disaster. Like I knew nothing and they, you know, but I always work hard. So they, they threw me on the line to work the pasta station and oh my God, uh, it was, <laughs> it, you know, the <laughs> dishes that the chef let me send to the table most often came back because they were just unedible. Uh, so it, you know, so it, it was a rough start. Um, but so I had that one summer and then I finished U of C and I had one, um, one semester left and I kind of kicked my way into an abroad program. I got, I got waitlisted and sort of, um, plead made a, a strong plea with the Dean to let me, uh, let me into one of the programs. I didn't care where, where we went, where I went and went to, ended up going to Vienna. And I, I said to the head of the program, you know, I'm, I worked a little, I worked this one summer in a restaurant. I, I'm interested in food. Like maybe there's a pastry shop or something I can go hang in, hang out at once a, once a week or something. Totally casual. So I landed in Vienna and she said, so my husband's uncle's friend from college, son, rides bicycles with the sous chef of the best restaurant in Vienna. That's literally what it was. <laughs> and, uh, and she's like, you know, he, he can meet you tomorrow. Um, if you're interested, it's like, all right. So I meet this dude, crazy guy. Uh, and he, he comes up to me and says, are you the Yankee who wants to cook <laughs> and, on the street? And I said, I, I am. And uh, he said, all right, well, we'll come, come to the restaurant tomorrow. And so I, I did. And, um, it was a Michelin star, like best restaurant in Vienna. It was incredible. I knew nothing about food. And they ended up taking me in and training me, um, sort of old school European style, like kick your butt, uh, you know, until you, you know, can't take it anymore and you figure it out. And, uh, lots of stories from that, from that, from that place. But the, that's sort of how I really was propelled into it. So, uh, a few things. I, I just want to explain for people, maybe not in the, uh, industry. So a sous chef is, I guess that means under chef, right? That's kind of the second yeah. in command in the kitchen. Is that yeah, a fair yeah. way to put it? Just yeah. like sous vide is under, under pressure, I guess. Uh, and the, so there are a lot of stories. I know we, we talked about one uh, over dinner the other night and I, I can't skip it. So could you tell people about your sort of baptism by fire in that kitchen? Um, so many stories. Uh, I think the one, yeah, the, 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 so the, 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 the fever dream, the fever dream. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so it was December and, uh, and that's the busiest time of the year by far for this restaurant. Uh, and the, um, the guy who did all the fish meats and sauces was, had to have surgery. And so the executive chef had to, um, take over for him. And now he was like 40 and it was a super talented guy, but was like not cooking anymore. Like he was running things and being out with the guests and, you know, doing his thing. So he was really unhappy about having to cook the line during the most busy time of the year. So he, he, like he walked in when, the, when we got news and was like, all right, Yankee, you're with me. And so he had this huge incentive to teach me how to prep everything as fast as possible because he didn't want to have to do it. So he taught me how to make all the sauces, prep all the meats, cook everything. 
And so then we would work the service together. Uh, but in the middle of the month, on a Friday, the chef came down with like 104 fever and was completely laid out. And it just so happened that my best friend, who was a Rhodes Scholar uh, at the time, was coming to visit me uh, from England. And um, so, you know, we're supposed to go hang out. I was supposed to have the weekend off and we were just going to hang. And so he shows up and I'm like, hey, man, you're coming with me. I'm putting you in a chef coat like we can't leave. And uh, they had the breakfast cook, this guy, Wolfgang, who was an awesome dude. But, you know, he was like he was like doing platters of fruit. And I mean, he was a good cook, but he didn't like cook dinner service. He never had. So it was the three of us trying to figure out this dinner service. And it was pretty funny. <laughs> oh, uh, but the, at the end of the night, the sous chef said, all right, Wolfgang, you got to take the day off. Um, it's, the, it's the two Yankees on the stove tomorrow night. And like the kitchen went silent. Like all the cooks were like, like they couldn't believe it. And so we figured out this system. My friend's a smart guy. So he, we studied the, the words in German of the different like fish and meats and whatever we needed. So the next night we had like a great, we were packed. And so the, the sous chef would call out the order. My friend would take out the fish or the meat and then I would cook it. And you, and you know, as I'm cooking on the other side of me, also cooking and facing me was the guy who did all the vegetables and side dishes that would go with my meat or fish. And I'd look up and he would just be standing there kind of with his mouth open, completely in awe of what was going on. Because, you know, that station that we were working was like what people would work their whole careers for. It's an incredibly prestigious, well-paid position. And here are these two Americans who knew nothing about cooking working in the Michelin star restaurant on the hardest station in the kitchen. It was hysterical. Uh, and we made it like we, we basically got through without any catastrophe. And I'll never forget when the last ticket went out, the sous chef, his name was Alois. He turns around and he said, Yankees, we won. And then like just in German shouted for bottles of champagne and bottles of beer. And, uh, and we had a good old party that night. It was, it was a, it was a ton of fun. And, uh, I, I remember, hearing this story and just having my jaw drop open because I've had, of course, very limited exposure to food and restaurants. But during the writing of The 4-Hour Chef, when we first met met up in, in D.C., yeah. I remember going into a handful of restaurants, uh, obviously different restaurants have very different environments. But when, you're, when you look at a line, not at a Michelin star restaurant, but uh, just at any restaurant during a busy period and like, 40 menus open at the same time, it is complete chaos. I mean, you have to be Dr. Octopus to work one of the hotlines. So it's like you guys were kind of yanked out of the audience by the conductor of the orchestra and asked to do violin solos. Uh, it's, it's a, I can't believe you guys made it through that. What, what was your internal self-talk? Like but yeah. when you got, when you got the news and like when you got the news or when you walked in for that, that evening, I mean, how did you, prep yourself for that because unlike baseball, right? Like if, if you're putting out every three out of 10 dishes is working in the restaurant, like you, right. get, you get punched in the face. So yeah. what, what was your self-talk to, to yeah. get through that? It's a great, it's a, I mean, I think the, the key in a restaurant and the key in any kind of high pressure situation, like I think 75% of success is, is staying calm and not losing your nerve. And 
um, you know, the rest you figure out. But once you lose your, once you lose your, your, your calm, everything else starts falling apart fast. And in a restaurant situation is the t- tickets start piling up and like everybody else's is waiting on you. So, and particularly in this, like the timing would have to be perfect because you go up on six dishes and the, the, the guy who's doing all the side stuff has like cooked all this and he's got to get to the next round. So your timing has to be right on. And if you're too slow, all of his stuff gets, he has, you know, it gets overcooked and he's got to cook it again, right? So you can really throw things off. Um, so I think the key thing was like mentally preparing myself. Like when something goes wrong, you just stay calm and stay the course. And I think the other thing, one of the first thing the sous chefs taught me, like he gave me some really fundamental rules, which have lasted me kind of throughout everything I do. One is, the first is never serve anything you wouldn't want to eat. Like never serve crap. It's like rule number one. Rule number two, which is just true. Just, you know, you can have a high standard on everything you do. Rule number two was when things get really busy, instead of just like, like plowing ahead and just trying to work as fast as you can and just go through all the tickets, he always would tell me, step back and come up with a plan. So look at which dishes you have and figure out what's the most efficient way to cook them. So if you have five of one thing, don't just cook them one at a time, like get them out, prep them together and, and do them together. So um, that those kind of like fundamental rules I, I tried to hold really close and you just come up with a good system. I think every great restaurant has an incredibly strong system that when the, the, the pressure gets heated, you know, heated up and the, everything's moving super fast. You rely on that system to move you through, and I think that was key. We came up with a good system, and and out it went. So I know you're not focusing on too many things at any one time. Focus on cooking the things that my friend was giving me, and uh, and it worked really well. It was uh, it was so fascinating for me to visit different kitchens and look at the layouts and <laughs> uh, and the the methods because they were really sort of the the internal workings of the executive chef thrown out into this the architecture of the room and the process and all that. And just being so surprised at, for instance, uh, Alinea in Chicago mm-hmm. and how quiet it is. There's no yelling. There's no screaming. It's more like a operating table. Yeah. Uh, what is the most uh, unusual restaurant that's a, that puts out very good food that, that you've come across in terms of just how it works? Mm. Well, the craziest kitchen I've ever seen, like, so I worked at a VEC, which is one of Chicago, one of America's great restaurants. And, you know, it was really a wine bar that ended up putting out such good food that it's won James Beard Awards and all kinds of other accolades just because the food ended up just kicking butt. But it was not set up for that at all. So it was a teeny line of three people, one big wood burning and gas burning, like, kind of oven and a little stove. And what people do out of that is just what we were doing out of that was, was incredible. But the kitchen that's like blows me away the most is the kitchen here in Brooklyn, actually, uh, at Frankie's 457. It's so tiny. It's literally like two guys on two uh, induction burners in a space that's like, I don't know, like five feet by 10 feet. And they cook for this huge restaurant at quality. It's like one of my favorite restaurants in, in, in America. What was the and name it, again? Frankie's 457. It's unbelievably good. And it's like you look at these two guys back there with an indu- two induction burners, and you, I just don't know. I just don't know how they do it. <laughs> uh, and it's, the menu's huge. I mean, it's, it's still, and it's delicious. So, what people can do out of very small spaces is, um, is pretty incredible. So, the 
for, for people who, who don't know what an induction burner is, and then, then correct me if I'm wrong, an induction burner is basically a stovetop that you plug in and yep. you can put on a countertop. Maybe it's the size of like a large dinner plate. I mean, it depends on what kind you get, but it uses, as I understand it, magnets to heat yep. metal. So you could actually take the pot off, put your hand right on the burner and not burn your hand. You got to make sure you don't have rings on, but yep. um, that actually... Uh, raises this, inter- this this question of kind of elegance, right? Because uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you later is, you know, what's the most interesting meal you could make in a dorm room, right? And you could, you could, I mean, induction burners in a five by 10 foot space. I mean, that's basically a dorm room that these guys are cooking in. It sounds like if, uh, if you had to limit your uh, herbs or spices to three choices for the rest of your life, what would your three, what would your three choices be? Herbs or spices? Oh my God! What a horrible, horrible question. <laughs> only, only, only three? Yeah. Or, or I, you know what? I'll give you a little bit of wiggle room. A handful. Uh, a, a handful. I mean, I'd have to have chilies of some kinds, any kinds. Uh, there's lots of kinds, but I, you know, some ch- some chilies I would have to have. Um, any herbs or spices? Uh, I'm a. I'd probably have to take. Basil and tarragon. I'm a huge tarragon guy. Um, spices. I mean, oh my god, how do I pick just one? Uh, oh god, I don't know. Like cumin is a big is a is a really versatile big spice. Um, I love pink peppercorns, although I don't know if that make the cut. Um, yeah, that's a really hard question. Oh, I know. That's why. That's why. Yeah. This is this yeah. is to get the to, to make the shopping list for myself. Now, tarragon, <laughs> tarragon kind of revolutionized eggs for me. Tarragon and and um, white truffle sea salt of all things, which was recommended by a friend of mine. How do you use tarragon? Oh man, I, you can use tarragon on anything. I love it in straight in salads. Um, you could chop it up with like some parsley as, uh, and some basil, and you can put that on fish. On, I use tarragon on steak. St- tarragon, like a little tarragon and maybe even a little butter on a steak is delicious. Um, uh, anything seafood I find tarragon goes also really well with. So you could do if you're doing a pasta, like lemon, you know, a lemon tarragon, something seafood pasta, filling the blank on the seafood, you pretty much can't go wrong. Um, so I, it's, it's, it's one of those interesting, you, you know, you got to be careful because you can use, it's strong. So um, you can overuse it pretty quickly, but if you use it gently, it um, it's a beautiful flavor. You mentioned steak. What is your favorite cut of steak, and why? Mm, I I guess favorite. I guess I'd have to be a ribeye guy, but I eat a lot of skirt steak, a lot of hanger steak. Um, I love braising, so you know, lots of different you know the braising cuts, ribs, and, and such. But if I'm gonna have like if I'm gonna have my last steak, it would be a ribeye. When you're cooking ribeye for yourself, just just for Sam, nobody else. How yeah. do you how do you cook it? Uh, grill. I, you know, if I'm doing it for myself, but really if I'm doing it for anybody, I, I just throw it on the grill. Really simple, um, and m- like medium rare to rare, and pretty olive oil, salts, and just a, sometimes pepper, sometimes not. I'm not a big pepper guy, so I don't put pe- black pepper on much on pretty much anything really. Um, but a steak is the kind of the one thing that I'd be open to that. And yeah, and away you go. Nothing, nothing fancy. And you put the olive oil and salt on beforehand or afterwards? Yeah, 
beforehand. Yeah. Got it. And if I, and if I'm going to do an herb, like sometimes I'll put tarragon or some rosemary, uh, I always do that afterwards because I find that when you put it on before, it just burns and you lose the flavor. But if you, you hit it afterwards, particularly if you're going to sear it on the grill and then finish it in the oven for a few minutes, which is often the way to do it if you have a, a thick cut, um, you put that on so it gets, a, you know, it, it cooks a little bit to round out the flavor, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't kill the flavor. Yeah, I always yeah. Um, finish, sort of sear and then finish at the oven at a low temperature and yeah. uh, just let the butter and whatever herbs I'm going to use kind of soak in from the top down. Yeah. Uh, the, so the, pe- the pepper point, you mentioned not much of a black pepper guy, but you also mentioned the pink peppercorns. So what, ha- what would you use pink peppercorns for, which I've never used or I don't think uh, I've ever used? Yeah, you could. I mean, so you could use them on any meat. They like go great on like pork or if you grind them up as a rub on pork or um, you could do on steak as well. Um, you, can, you can do a fun dressing, a salad dressing with them as part of it. But it becomes part of a, a, a flavor. Whereas like for me, black pepper, it's used like salt, right? We use it on everything. But salt doesn't – salt becomes part of the flavor. It, it, it elevates the flavor. Whereas pepper like – layers on top of the flavor and it's it, it always just kind of blankets things for me and i don't know i just i don't i'm just not a fan uh uh of, of that sort of ubiquitous pepper flavor on everything um so on the flip side if uh, aside from tarragon if someone if one of your very close friends were to say you know i love sam but he really overuses this ingredient what would that ingredient or condiment or herb or spice be Mm. I I don't know, probably garlic, but we all are guilty of using garlic too much because it's just so damn good. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes everything better. I, I literally have minced garlic in my tea right now. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so yeah, I'm guilty of the same sin. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Uh, how did you first meet the Obamas? Um, so, uh, yeah, so we're both from Hyde Park and Hyde Park is on the South side of Chicago, like where the University of Chicago is. And, and, um, you know, when he was a professor, actually, I had known him just from the neighborhood, uh, and the first now first lady, um, when I was in high school and then, uh, but then lost touch with them for many years and got reconnected with them when I came back from my, uh, my time in Vienna and then f- subsequent travels around the world, uh, uh, sort of traveled for about four or five years at, you know, through Vienna and then past it. Um, so I got reconnected with them sort of right as the campaign was, was, uh, was getting going. And was that through Avec or how did you guys end up reconnecting? Um, so, uh, we reconnected cause so I, after I, when I was in Vienna, I was actually there illegally. I had no workers permit or anything and ended up sort of getting run out of town. And, <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a story. That's a story for another day. Uh, and, um, so then I spent about, um, four, four, four more years past that cooking and traveling. And I ended up getting connected to a family that had a place in New Zealand. And so I cooked a couple seasons down in New Zealand and they were from Chicago. So I, after the second season, I came back with them to, um, to Chicago to work part time. And the, the father of that family knew uh, the first lady and happened to run into her um, on, on a plane and they got to talking and, you know, and he was telling them, telling the, the first lady about 
you know, me cooking for them. And, and, and she's like, Oh, Sam, I haven't seen him in years. And so we got reconnected and, uh, you know, back then there was no staff. It was basically just them, grandma, little, they had a little bit of help, but, but not much. So I started helping out the first lady as she had to get on the, the campaign trail more and more when the kids were still very young. And so started helping her out with, uh, with cooking some better food for them. What meals, what were some favorite meals during that, that, uh, intense campaigning period? Oh, you know, that's all top secret. Am I <laughs> just can't disclose. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, look, and, and during that time and, and all the way through, I mean, they, there's, there's never been, uh, any interest in fancy food at all. Really simple, uh, food that everybody's going to like, you know, lots of chicken or lean proteins, lots of fish. We always do whole grains. So if we're doing rice, there's always brown rice and always, you know, be, you know, good, good serving of vegetables. Um, and just, you know, um, n- nothing, it, it, it's always, I think the thing that people, um, you know, think about when they think of private chef, you think, oh, fancy food, but really you're in your home, right? So people don't want to feel like they're in a restaurant. And that same is true in the White House. And I think, um, so we always kept it really, really simple um, and never, never did anything. I mean, we ate like everybody else eats, nothing, nothing crazy. We'd love a good burger, you know, uh, so things what, like that. What if, if hypothetically uh, you had, let's say, you know, five years from now, you decide, you know what, just for the hell of it, I'm going to have a couple of restaurants in Chicago. And uh, you go back at some point, you're the owner, and you you decide to kind of hang out at one of the restaurants. And lo and, lo and behold, the Obamas come in for dinner. Mm-hmm. And they say, Sam, make us whatever you think. We'll bring back the memories. What would you make them? <laughs> what would I bring back the memories? What would I make them? Uh, that's a great question. I guess it depends. The first thing I'd say is it depends on what the season is, because I think one of the keys to great food is cooking with the season. Um, summertime, summertime. So summertime, I'd probably start with, uh, like a, a really nice tomato salad because, um, one of the best things about cooking in the white house has been the first day's garden. And we got to pick, you know, awesome produce right out of the garden right before dinner. So I'd probably start with an awesome tomato salad. Um, Maybe do some barbecued chicken um, uh, with with some good spice. I don't know. Uh, maybe some potatoes and uh, just a bunch of vegetables. So we would pick like zucchini and I do zucchini and basil. Maybe a little eggplant or some peppers. I don't know. It just depends what's going on. So we've grown some great corn, so maybe do some some really good corn with that. Um, something like that. What um, what would the tomato salad look like? Uh, I love tomato. If you got great tomatoes, you don't want to do much to them. I mean, I think um, if you don't have great tomatoes, then you got to work with them some. But you probably should just do a different salad then. Um, <laughs> I uh, I like it with a little onion, and on this one, like typically, I have a red onion, really thinly sliced. One of my big things. I hate thickly sliced red onion. It's like as thin as you can slice it, thinner the better. Uh, but actually, in the tomato salad, a white onion finely cut too is, is good. Um, with some nice, uh, olive oil and, you know, like a white balsamic is really nice on tomato salad. It's got a touch of sweetness. Um, and any, any number of herbs, like, you know, you could do part whole leaf parsley and some basil, maybe throw in some like green beans or wax beans in there that are blanched. Something like that, you know, sounds pretty good to me. That sounds great. What other 
pet peeves do you have aside from overuse of pepper, thickly sliced onions? I love pet peeves. I've got a million of them myself. So what, what uh, other things make you crazy when it comes to food? Um, I think the thing that makes me the most crazy in food is just when people try too hard and they try to be something that they're not. Like there's nothing more than I love than like a perfect fried wing or like a, an awesome a, a burger. But I hate when there's like food that looks all fancy but tastes like crap. Like it's like just, just you know, if you can do food that's beautiful and super well composed and, and like I, I appreciate that too. It's not that I don't uh, like that. But if you're just throwing foam everywhere and doing all some weird concoctions because that's sort of trendy, like I hate the trends in food. I like real just well-executed food that you can tell is, has a lot of love in it and a lot of authenticity in it. And I think that – that for me is is most important. Um, so I, I I think generally that's the thing that like that determines my experience uh, in eating in eating somebody's food. That was that was something that really surprised me when I got to know uh, quite a few chefs in writing the Four Hour Chef was that uh, when they came to visit, say, my house for dinner or someone else's house, the last thing they wanted to have was a five course meal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like the last thing they wanted to have was some type of foam sprayed onto their plate with like tweezer cuisine on top of it. They're just like, no, just give me like a, a really fatty burger or yeah. <laughs> something yeah. really simple that I can enjoy consuming. Uh, yeah. the, uh, what, what made uh, the white house garden unique? Cause I know that that a lot of thought went into that and I've become, I've never gardened, uh, but I've become very fascinated by it because I, when I went to, uh, this, this village called Ogimi in, Okinawa at one point it has the the longest median lifespan in the world, and I just mm-hmm. noticed that nearly everyone gardened in some capacity. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so, w- what made the White House Garden unique? Uh, well, there's a lot unique about that garden. Um, you know, one, it's the first garden since Eleanor Roosevelt's Victory Garden uh, during World War II, which was a really powerful symbolic garden, but it was actually quite small and really didn't produce food to eat. Um, so the White House Garden, the first day's garden, is really the first garden since the late 1890s, um, and that, that actually produced food. Um, and, you know, it was designed, its whole purpose was to really shine a light on, on food, where it comes from, how it's grown, how hard it is to grow good food, and really uh, lift up farmers all over, uh, America that are, you know, producing the, the nourishment that we need to survive. And, um, and, and make it educational. And I, and I think that's really, you know, so it was a working life garden that we ate from every day. Um, but also we had kids come down for tours uh, on a weekly basis. The kids would come and plant with the first lady and then harvest and cook with her a couple of times a year. We had a compost to really talk about the importance of giving back to the soil, building soil for, for fertility, which is a huge issue across the country. Um, and we also had the first ever beehive on the White House grounds. Um, which, uh, which is, which is just awesome. And we got tons of honey, but also could talk to the kids about pollinators and why they're so important. And we have a huge, huge problem with uh, colony colony collapse disorder. And we're, we're losing bees and other pollinators at, you know, really alarming rates, which have massive implications for our economy and, and our ability to, to produce food. So, you know, I think, um, when you look at the whole picture and what it's accomplished since that garden's been planted, Gardening across the country has skyrocketed. It's up over thirty percent, um, 
And uh, so it's been uh, really exciting, and and it was just it was a ton of fun. And uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned a couple of things that I think are really important. Uh, the magnitude of the impact of bees is something I I never really understood, and I still need to understand more. But uh, people talk about the butterfly effect, and I, I feel like you know the bee effect, sort of the the ripple, the, the cascade of different sort of ecosystem changes that bees are involved with is really astonishing. The second thing I would encourage people to look into is what you mentioned, which is the soil depletion. And mm-hmm. I remember at one point, maybe one of the listeners can, can find this, but seeing data that uh, I believe it was from China that looked at the incidence and frequency of uh, cancer diagnosis in different regions in China. And you could pretty much predict how much cancer there would be based on uh, topsoil depletion yeah. in different regions because they would end up with trace mineral deficiencies like selenium and so on. Um, and uh, I, I remember reading about this at one point of something like in certain areas because of uh, monocrops, you know, like the huh? wheat and soy and so on in the U.S., the topsoil has gone from whatever, 10 feet to like 10 inches. And yeah. um, what do you think needs to be done or what can be done to help reverse that trend? So there's there's a lot that needs to be done, and I'd say it, it's it's a it's a topic that doesn't get anywhere near the attention that it deserves. But everything comes everything is based on the health of our soil. It is the reason why we have such a prosperous nation was that we had the best soil in the world, and it helped us produce a surplus of crops, which allowed um, you know big parts of our population to go on and build and create and do other things. Um, and the, the, the dramatic loss across the nation on, on our, on our topsoil is something that is, it couldn't be a, a more important issue and it couldn't be a harder one to make, get people excited about because it's like, ah, dirt, like, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> uh, so there's lots of things that need to be done. Um, and I think they're starting to see some change. I think people are starting to, to wake up to this. We need to do a much better job at, at rotating our crops to rebuild fertility right now where we're basically growing a, just a couple crops and using um, synthetic fertilizers to sort of make up for the lack of fertility in the soil. That's a problem. We're having all kinds of, 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 of problems from stemming from that runoff in our water, you know, massive algae blooms in the Gulf killing sea life. There's lots of, lots of challenges going on there. So I think we need to rotate crops. I think we need to change our practices to really focus on rebuilding that fertility, um, using different, uh, sources of, uh, fertilizer, natural fertilizers. And you're starting to see people taking back some of that land and rebuilding. And hopefully that will continue to grow. And people, I mean, I think are going to continually have to um, ask, you know, work on, you know, sourcing food that's coming from farmers that are, you know, uh, you know, doing those kind of practices that are, are more sustainable. I think the thing that people don't realize is that if we use those kind of practices, that is the best, one of the best tools we have to sequester carbon. Um, so agriculture is not only a, a challenge to when it comes to sustainability and, and our environmental challenges with, with greenhouse gas emissions, it's a, it's a significant producer of, but it, it actually, unlike, other aspects of the challenge, it can actually be part of the solution. And so there's, uh, there's, there's exciting opportunity there that we don't see in too many other sectors that need to change. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited about the potential for, uh, kind of soil replenishment because I feel like it could be effective in marketing product. Does that make sense? Like there's a, 
there's a kind of economic self-interest that I think could be harnessed if yeah. somebody could create the proper campaign. Um, what, uh, what do you see or what do you think the future is, if any, of, uh, say, organic subsidies uh, for people who really want to or large companies that really want to produce organic produce mm-hmm. but view it as cost prohibitive or, or something along those lines? Yeah. So this is obviously a very complicated, uh, complicated question and a really complicated politics. I think the place, and this again is hard to get people super excited about, but I think the place to really start is in research. So over the last about 50 years, we poured the vast majority, I mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars into researching just a couple crops, uh, and, uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, writ large have not gotten, mostly it's gone to corn and soy, some wheat, but mostly corn and soy. Um, and that has allowed corn and soy to be produced much more efficiently um, than it used to. And so a lot of the price difference we talk about, like the relative cost of, of, of say, sugar and other things versus uh, uh, fruit or a vegetable, is because we figured out how to grow those crops much more efficiently. Right. And so if we invest that same kind of research to try to figure out how to grow fruits and vegetables more efficiently, we're going to make up a lot of the ground. Now, Part of the challenge is that, you know, the people who are currently growing, say, the fruits and vegetables, no matter whether they're doing it organic or not organic, the, they like the fact that they're the only ones growing it. So they not support subsidies for other people to grow more fruits and vegetables. Oh, so there's, that's interesting. So, so there's really tough politics because in Washington, if the people you're trying to help are against you, it's going to be very hard <laughs> to move anything through. Uh, it's hard to move anything through if they're with you. Um, because there's always going to be people on the other side fighting very hard and investing a lot of money and seeing that not happen. So on this particular one, it, the politics are really hard to get Congress to, to, to shift where we're putting some of these subsidies. Now, on the organic side, which is a different set of questions, I think the market's going to have to continue to drive the change. And you're seeing organic um, uh, you know, continue to grow at, at a very rapid rate, although it's a still a very small part of the overall uh, food economy. But I think the more consumers demand it, I think the more it's going to get grown and, and it's going to become increasingly more affordable um, for farmers to, to produce it when we get some more scale there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a, such a thorny, gnarly topic. Uh, and uh, I, would, I would suggest, just as a side note for folks who perhaps – want to eat organic, but have to pick and choose for financial reasons or otherwise, there's a list called the Dirty Dozen, and I think it might be the Clean 15, which is sort of the the 12 items, produce items that are best avoided, that have the highest concentrations of pesticides. But I think the research is really, as you noted, super important because if uh, it's one thing in the abstract to say organic is better for reasons A, B, and C and avoiding synthetic pesticides, but if, if someone could actually look at, say, the the endocrine impact of estrogenic compounds that are found in uh, synthetic fertilizers that therefore affect fertility or whatever, then I think the it could get more airtime. Yeah. Um, I, I, will, I will say just on one, one thing on this point, though. I, you know, I think people should try to eat organic when they can, but I think they need to eat fruits and vegetables first and foremost. So I think part of the, the thing to be concerned about is, well, um, I, I would much rather – People eat uh, conventional, any conventional fruit or vegetable than like organic uh, chips or organic cupcakes, right? right. And, and I think, um, 
you know, I, we're getting better. People are raising more awareness. Our agricultural practices are getting better, largely because this stuff is getting more and more expensive. So farmers are learning how to be more diligent about their applications. There's obviously a lot, a lot longer to go, but there's going to be some things where we're going to need some insecticides and some pesticides. And I think that's okay as long as they're being used responsibly. Um, but, uh, but I don't want people, I think part of the thing we need to avoid is, um, sort of fear based, uh, if you eat this, it's going to kill you because there's just not the evidence there. There, there's, there's reasons for serious concern and, and continue engagement and pushing on, on some of these topics, but, but it shouldn't keep anybody from, uh, from consuming that kind of that balanced diet that, that we know is important. Do you, um, so there was an article that came out, uh, recently by Steve case called the future mm-hmm. of food is food. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you? What is your? What are your thoughts on meal replacements like Soylent and so on? Yeah. So I actually tweeted about. Um, I tweeted about that article. I I couldn't agree with with Steve more. I mean, Steve basically makes the argument that sort of high tech, uh, artif- like artificially put together uh, drinks that you know are based on some science, you know, kind of could replace food. Um, and I think the, the vision for, for the folks at Swillin is that they can create a perfect meal. So instead of eating a bunch of junk, you can just conveniently drink this. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't hate the sort of the vision there in the sense that they're trying to do something good. But if the future is a disgusting, tasteless, uh, soulless beverage to sustain, you know, just to keep us alive, that's not a future I have much interest in being a part of. I think, I think it lacks authenticity. I think it lacks flavor. I think it lacks happiness and joy. And all of that goes into what a good, good nourishment means to me. And I think I, I see a role for maybe with elderly people and, and others for improved sort of dietary supplement, you know, uh, meals like that. But I don't think that's a solution that uh, I, for one, have any interest in participating in. Uh, uh, I think real good food grown properly that supports the people who are growing it, that supports the health of the people who are eating it, that also is damn good is where we should all be, you know, driving for. Yeah, I've I've done a, an about face on this stuff because I've always been a kind of supplement addict and uh, been infatuated with pills and potions and whatnot as, as supplementation. But I mean, they're, they're called supplements for a reason. And I've really found that uh, echoing the sentiment of, say, Nassim Taleb wrote the Black Swan and anti-fragile. So he, he uses a term called epistemological or, uh, yeah, epistemological arrogance, which is sort of overestimating how much you understand about yeah. anything as a human. And I think it's, yeah. it's naive to think, I've come to this conclusion anyway, that you can, that we would understand every element of what's in an apple, for instance, or what's yeah. in a slice of ribeye. Like we, we just, yeah. there's so much uncharted territory that yeah. it's naive to think we could take the four or five things we've isolated, put them in a pill and, and, uh, sort of confer the same nutritional benefit, for instance. I mean, that's kind of point number one, yeah. but, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a very interesting, it's a, it's a very, very fascinating subject, but I've, I've, yeah. I've gone, completely in the, in the whole food direction, just trying to consume a spectrum of colors every day, for instance. Yeah. Uh, the, um, so can, can I, I want to add something to that. I, yeah. I think that is on the nutritional side, that, that basic 
point and understanding of our limitations couldn't be more right. I mean, we've tried very hard to kind of reduce uh, our health to one vitamin or fiber or this or that in a very reductionist way and utterly miss the interplay between all of these different vitamins, nutrients, fiber, protein, and also, by the way, completely miss how our body processes it. So it's turning out that you know, we have 100 trillion bacteria in our gut, 100 trillion, which really what we're doing is feeding that bacteria, which then in turn feeds us. And it's going to, the evidence is emerging that the microbiome, the, the gut bacteria is going to be one of the most important things to focus on in terms of improving our health and that we've lost quite a bit of diversity in our gut. And we don't, but there's, you know, a couple hundred uh, species of bacteria in our gut, a little less. And we are just trying to figure out what does what and how they interact. And it's everybody's different. The complexities here are just overwhelming. Um, we know that they need to be fed a high diet of fiber, lots of fruits and vegetables, basically what they feed. And from birth. So like we, for a long time, there was parts of, of breast milk that we, that babies couldn't digest and we didn't understand. We didn't think they were important, but turns out actually all those elements in breast milk are feeding the emerging biome in the young in the baby's gut, which is then gives it, it deals with the immune system and, and inflammation and all these vital things and, and, uh, digesting of food. So there's like the complexity is beyond anything that we can comprehend right now. And, um, I think we have continually like over and over try to say it was, Oh, it's fat is the problem. And like, turns out, okay, wait, fat's not the problem. Oh, it's a deficiency in omega this. And okay, well, it turns out, well, that's good, but it's not certainly the panacea that we was made out to be. You know, every time we do this, we get it wrong. And so I, I agree with you. I mean, I think there's some things that have been tested over the millennia and, um, which is that kind of balanced, good diet of, you know, whole grains and lots of fruits and vegetables, lean proteins. And I think that's where, um, we, we, we're safest is when we stay in that kind of, uh, that kind of space. And I'm glad you mentioned safest because it's, it's not just, oops, I didn't cover all my bases. When you take a very reductionist approach, uh, for instance, when people, uh, when the media got its hands on the so-called promises of beta carotene, right. and people start consuming massive amounts of beta carotene in isolation, it can actually cause a lot of problems when yeah. you're not sort of consuming it in its natural, uh, environment, so to speak. But, um, yeah. I'd love to shift gears and ask yeah. some, uh, some rapid fire questions. They don't have to have rapid answers, but, uh, when Go. you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why? Hmm. Well, two people come to mind, uh, Barack Obama, uh, and my, and my father, but for wildly different reasons. Uh, I mean, Barack Obama's, you know, success to me, I measure based on um, impact and the amount of impact that um, somebody is trying to have in a positive way on, on, on the world around them, not by money or, but it's sort of what you do with the places you've been given. And, you know, I'm, there's lots of legitimate disagreements in, in, in politics. And I'm sure there's legitimate disagreements with some of the things that the president has, has done. But he is, you know, I know um, firsthand on a daily basis that, Here's somebody who's trying to, and has had a massive positive impact on the world around him. So that, that's something that, um, you know, I, I very much look up to and admire and, and, you know, in my much, much, much smaller way, try to 
figure out how I can have the, the biggest positive impact on the world around me. And I'd say, but on the flip side, you know, but that takes, you know, there's a lot of ambition that goes with that and, all, you know, disappointments when you fail. Um, on the flip side, like success, my father is, um, he is a, he's a fifth grade teacher, has, he just retired after 25 years. Um, uh, he lives an incredibly humble life and, you know, as a, you know, a union guy growing up and, 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 the, and then a teacher and, and a union guy and sort of in the school. And he, um, he, he's utterly content. Uh, he, he has a, a good community of friends. He's, you know, has roof over his head and, and, and meals on his table. In fact, when I first looked at a restaurant in Chicago, he had never spent $20 on a meal for himself, which I only found out when I invited him in for a meal at the end of my summer time there. Um, so he's just very content in, in like the simple pleasures and the sort of a simple life. And I, and that's something that, um, is, you know, I, I, I also try to take into what success looks like is, is, is that kind of contentness and being appreciative of, of, uh, of what you have. Right. Having the appreciation, not just the drive for achievement. Yeah. What's, what book, uh, or what is a book that you've gifted most often or gifted very often to other people? Mm, I've gifted. I've been pushing around the art of fielding over the last year or two uh, by Chad Harbach. I love that book. Uh, it's like it's it's so it's a baseball theme, but it's really about life and 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 all that goes with it and complexities of relationships and. I don't know. There's something that, that book just sucked me in, and and it, I love the feeling of being sucked in, which, you know, doesn't happen with that intensity too often. So I uh, that was a good one. The art of fielding. Are there yeah. any uh, any documentaries, documentary films, or movies that have sucked you in in that way? Hmm. I love documentaries. I'm a, I'm a big fan, uh, and a good and a great movie as well. the The last one I just saw actually just came out, um, which I really loved, called Just Eat It. Uh, and it's about food waste. Um, well, we, we waste 40% of the food we produce, uh, which is just insane. There's no other major like life system that is so inefficient. Um, and it's about this couple that, um, basically for, I forget how long, six months decides to only eat food that they has been wasted, that they find thrown away in some way, shape or form. And it's unbelievable story. It's so really well done. It's only an hour. Um, I think it just aired on MSNBC actually, but they, they are having to have to give away food. They find so much of it. Um, they can't eat it all. Um, and it's, so it was very powerful, very well done. Um, but that's the one that's top of mind. I'll have to check that out. That, uh, makes me think there's a book, uh, I read a long time ago. I think it was called the man who gave up money or the man who stopped using money, something along those lines, but it delves into sort of the dumpster diving freegan mm-hmm. movement, I guess they call them instead of mm-hmm. vegans. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating. Uh, yeah. what, uh, what hundred dollar or less purchase has had the biggest positive impact on your life in the last six months to a year? Let's just mm-hmm. say whatever mm-hmm. comes to mind. It doesn't have to be in that time frame. Um, yeah, the recent purchase, I got a, I got a Kindle recently, which I hadn't had before. Uh, which has been great. Uh, you know, I, I know people, I'm like way behind, you know, behind the curve and it's not the highest tech way to read, a, read, read things, but it's, but it's been great cause I'm all over the place. And, and so that's helps. I also got an ice bucket and, uh, it's made the rosé that much colder as summer is starting to, to hit. And that's been 
oh, an investment well worthwhile. That's a good call. Ice bucket. Yeah. Love rosé. There's a great, you know, I um, grew up on Long Island. There's a wonderful rosé from uh, Wolfer Estates. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know that. It's really good. Yeah, the winemaker, Roman, is just amazing. Um, not too expensive either. Uh, what, no. what does the first 60 minutes of your day look like? Do you, what, what are morning rituals, whether when you were at the White House or now, that have been consistent for yeah. you? Um, so pretty consistent basic routine. Um, the one variable in that, like, I, I used to do a lot more. I, I don't do any more. Like, the first thing I love to do from the perfect world is to do a short stint of meditation for, like, 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, it's been hard for me to keep that. It's impossible for me to do that at the White House for whatever reason. I just think mentally quieting and slowing my mind was just something that I just it wouldn't do as hard as, hard as I tried. Um, and exhaustion uh, also played a role. But I wake up and um, uh, work out uh, five or six days a week, um, do about 30 minutes of cardio, and then do weights of various uh, sort of sets. Um, what, what type of cardio do you do? So I'll do 10 minutes, uh, on the bike. And then now I've been doing uh like 12 minute, you know, interval, interval run, run. And then, um, I'm doing like another 10 minutes, uh, in, in like 12 incline walking at 3.5 on the treadmill. Um, sometimes I do the elliptical, um, in there and then, and then do weights. Um, and then, and then, uh, so in the White House, it was always, you know, take a shower, get ready. And then I do oatmeal, a banana and coffee. Since I've been, uh, out of the White House, I've been doing eggs, um, one of, you know, a couple ways, uh, some like whole wheat toast, maybe some avocado, maybe a little salmon and then, and, and coffee. That's been the routine. And then away I go. Do you do Do you do anything in particular before bed? Uh, the, Mm, I don't have that same kind of routine at night. Often because nights are like much more variable. Like the morning has always been the time that I take for myself um, and carve out uh, because after that, it's like anybody's guess what's going to happen. Um, but try to, you know, try to come bring down a little bit. But oftentimes, and certainly at the White House, I was working until one, two, three in the morning um, pretty consistently. So um, it was sort of like you worked till you fell off, <laughs> fell off your chair. <laughs> crawled it to bed and then got up a few hours later and started doing it all over again. So, um, so I don't have that same kind of night routine. Got it. And when you, when you meditated, what type of meditation did you do? What did that, uh, what did that look like? Um, so I, so I, the, the woman who taught me is one of the most uh, amazing people I've ever known. Um, she was an 80-year-old woman uh, who was actually from France who I met when I was traveling on the border of Malaysia and, and Thailand on an overnight train. She was 80 years old, and she had spent the last like 20-plus years of her life just traveling with a teeny little four, like eight-pound backpack, and that's all she had. And she went everywhere, and she was just the most amazing person. And she um, – so it's like – you know, but she's not like a you know, formal teacher – so, you know, just trying to sit up, you know, have good posture and just, you know, fundamentally relax and focus on my breathing is like as sophisticated as I got. Um, and trying to let your mind relax and, and re repeating that, forcing your mind to get back to that state, which is, you know, it's always been such a challenge. It's so hard. Um, 
uh, has is sort of how I would do it for as long as I as as I could. But when I do it, I feel so much better and so much more grounded and and sort of calm through the day. It's uh, but it takes a lot of discipline to carve out the time um, in any given day. I f- yeah, I found for myself because I, I meditate fifteen to twenty minutes each morning, and uh, usually twenty. Uh, two things really interesting. Number one, it takes about fifteen minutes for me just to let the dust and the, or the mud settle. Um, <laughs> so I really only feel like I'm meditating, uh, in the calm sense for the last five minutes, but it's the, you need, I need the 15 minutes just as a warm up or a cool yeah. down maybe. And then secondly, that posture I've noticed if I just sit with very good posture and kind of lengthen my spine, imagine my head being kind of pulled up on a string even if I don't get to some sublime state, if I just focus and sit that way for 20 minutes, there's a huge yep. benefit for me anyway. I feel uh, the same way about that. Yep. Uh, would love to ask some questions from uh, people on Facebook and Twitter who were very excited that we were going to be chatting. Uh, the first is a tough one, uh, but it's from Andrew Zimmern. Uh, uh, oh, love that man. He's awesome. Andrew's great. Uh, also has been on the podcast and he wanted to ask some questions because he hears them very often. He gets asked them very often and it's always curious uh, how other people answer them. So the, the first is uh, if it's illegal to sell cigarettes to minors or drugs slash booze, why do we let fast food or sugar drinks into schools? Yeah. So it's a great question. So a uh, couple points. So one, um, because of the new standards uh, that are in play, um, there are no more sugary drinks in schools. And those are out. Um, and I actually need to give the, you know, the beverage companies credit. They actually voluntarily, voluntarily pulled out most of those beverages around starting in around 2007. But the new standards utterly eliminate all sugary drinks. Um, you can have a low calorie in high school. You can have a low calorie Gatorade and you can have no calorie drinks. So diet sodas are allowed in high schools, not in middle schools and certainly not in lower schools. Um, so those drinks are out now, on the fast food side. Um, I have always been pretty appalled that some of these, uh, particularly the less healthy companies, have set up shop in high schools. Now, this is not ubiquitous by any stretch of the imagination, but they definitely exist in some number. And I actually need to look and see because their food does not meet the standards So unless they're changing their offerings. So I am not sure how many, like where, where they are in the evolution of either what they're offering in schools or if some of them have had to pull out, you know, the truth is, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll, I'll dig into that and come back to you on it. Um, but I agree. I think it's really inappropriate, um, to be serving, you know, have a fast food, pretty unhealthy restaurant set up in a, in a high school. I find that to be, I've always found that to be very off putting. Cool. Uh, yeah, would love uh, for people listening who participate on the blog. Uh, obviously, there'll be a post with all the links and resources and so on, including things like uh, you know organizations like American Farmland Trust that I've done stuff with. If you want to sort of get involved with some of these things, but I would love to hear ideas for what types of campaigns or angles could be taken to remedy that from folks. Uh, I do pay attention to the comments. Uh, next question is from Cinema Air. This is on Twitter. Best use of wine that's too old to drink? So, um, you know, depending on the kind of wine, and, uh, you know, I think there's there's probably a little magic depending on where you are and how it goes. But, you know, that's how you make vinegar. So, uh, you know, grape juice turns into vinegar, right? So, um, 
there you could depending on how it goes you can use it kind of in that in that way a lot of people use it for cooking but you know no no real chef would say you should uh if it's not good to drink with it's really not good to cook with so the truth is like there's uh there's not much to do with it i gotta be honest i would get (laughs) at least not that i know i'm maybe somebody out there's got a good thing but Basically, like, drink it before it goes bad is my best advice to you. And, you know, the thing that, you know, if you get just one of those simple air pumps with, with the with the rubber top that pulls the air out, you add, you know, a week or two, depending on the wine, uh, life to it. And that's what I use. You know, we use that in our house. Um, and it, it makes a big difference. Because there's nothing worth. There's, like, one of the worst feelings in the world is dumping out a half a bottle of wine that you didn't get to finish. Yeah. So I'm paying the the vacuum is really cheap and really effective. I yeah. um, I use the same device. Uh, on that point, uh, Stefan, I think it's Stefan uh, Bendel. What should home chefs stop doing? So wasting <laughs> wine would be one. <laughs> wow! What should home chefs stop doing? Love. There's there's a few things. Um, what should home chefs start doing? I need to spend more time with home chefs to give you the best answer. Uh, I think dragging the knife across the cutting board, like as like a shovel is something that like you never supposed to do. If you need to like move like the vegetables to scoop them up, use the backside of the knife, but like scraping the knife on the cutting board just drives me crazy. It's just really bad for your knife. Dulls it immediately. Um, something that I cringe at. I think, um, chefs, the home cooks need to, um, work with heat. Uh, like not be afraid of, of, of heat more. So particularly like when you're searing fish, it's like you need that pan hot. And so letting, like putting it in, like getting your pan super hot and then putting your fish down and leaving it and not touching it and letting it get that nice, you know, uh, good sear, good golden brown on it before you touch it is like key to fish. And most, most people don't get their pan hot enough. Don't heat it. Don't ever get it hot enough. Don't take the time to heat it. And then play around with the fish, which, which ends up really hurting its, its ultimate, um, feel. But I think allowing, I think basically one thing that's the big difference between a pro and a home cook is that like the, the, the getting real color on things, be it meat or any vegetable that's on the grill or anything you're putting in the pan, like just let it go. When you think it's like ready, like give it another minute or two and like get that really dark, dark color on it. It adds a ton of flavor. When can you tell that your pan is hot enough for that nice sear on a fish? So like when you put the oil in, like you don't want it to immediately start smoking. Like then your oil's done. Like don't put it in there. If it's like you put it in, it's like smoke. But like you should see the oil get that kind of those lines in it that kind of shimmer. And it should just start to give off a little bit of like you can see just a little bit of smoke. Um, that's when you're you're ready to go. But it should be like hot. Like when you put it in, it should be like, like it should be like go crazy. Like if it's just like a little mild bubble, like you're not, you, you weren't ready. And what what type of oil do you like to use with with fish, for instance? Um, you know, you can use a lot. Like you can use olive oil; it has a lower smoke point, but you can you can get away with it. Um, I like grapeseed oil; is a great oil to cook with. Um, uh, you know, you can do high heat canola; is totally fine. Um, uh, those are probably the main ones to to go with yeah, peanut I mean, oil is awesome, but yeah, that's I, a little expensive. Yeah. I've been playing myself a little bit with avocado oil because it has high, huh. you know, omega three content, decent smoke point, but it's so 
rich. Yeah. It's, uh, you can some kind depending on the food, you can easily enhance or completely contaminate what you're yeah. trying to trying to make. Uh, next question is from Chaos Sonata. Uh, when you fall into a rut in the kitchen, uh, what book, resource, or person do you turn to for inspiration? Oh, interesting. Um, so I don't, yeah, it's a good, I mean, I try to get out and eat or go to the store or go like see and feel and touch and smell is the thing that I try to do when I'm, when I'm just sort of feel dead and use the actual ingredients to inspire what I'm going to do. But I'd say the book that I re- that I look at, I really don't look at cookbooks that a ton anymore, but the one recently that I have is all of Odalenge's books are awesome. How do you? Oh, wait a second here. I know this name. Uh, how, how do you spell that name or the first name? Um, Otto Lenga. Let me. Let me. Um, o T T O L E N. Let me. Let me just pull it up for you. Um, o T T O L E N G H I. Um, he is an incredible chef. Him and his partner. Uh, actually, one is he's. Uh, you know, they're Palestinian and Israeli. Uh, uh, team couple and um, they have plenty is probably their most famous book but they have Jerusalem and plenty more their books are just spectacular and the recipes are simple but so delicious um, I, 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 I've definitely cooked a few out of them and they're always they're always awesome if someone is new to healthy cooking where would you suggest they start what could they start with as a, uh, yeah, any, anything simple they could, they could use to get the ball rolling in terms of like a dish, uh, or, or a book? uh, dish stocking the kitchen, unstocking the kitchen. It was, it's, it's a general question. So yeah. I'd say you can interpret it any way you want. So I think the key is like starting simple. I think people, whenever they approach like, okay, I want to make a change. They think I got to overhaul everything. And so then they try to do a dramatic thing. And then, and then of course, it's not sustainable. You can't keep that up. You, you revert back to kind of who you've been. And it, then you just completely stop. So I would think like little things. So one place to start is vinegar. If you want to start small, like getting really good vinegar makes a, like a salad go from really uninspired to really delicious. So one place that I did actually invest a little, if you're going to invest a little resource in, is getting some really nice vinegar to make really beautiful salads. And salads are like some, some, some kind of green, like a good combo is some kind of, some kind of leaf, um, some kind of texture, be a cucumber or fennel or, you know, various things. Acidity. So you could add, you know, any kind of citrus fruit is always great or just a really nice vinegar, some nuts of some kind and a cheese of some kind, like a Parmesan or a pecorino or different. If you like that kind of basic components. It's hard to really make it terrible. Sometimes cheese can throw you off, so you can, you know, play around with that. But you get good texture, you get good flavor, and if you have a nice vinegar, like the world is yours. And that's a really good place to just add some salad on, on you know, to your dinner is a, is a great place to start. But I would just try to add a piece of fruit. Try to add a, another thing of vegetables at, at dinner. Like if you just start there, those two things, and I think the other main thing to start is drinking more water. Um, there's nothing better than water. The more water you drink, the less, you know, sugary beverages you're going to drink, which is, you know, really key if you're going to try to live a healthier life. And, um, you know, that's a great place to start. And then from there you can, you build from there. 
Yeah, the water, just to echo that for people who might be following a diet of any type, slow carb or paleo, whatever, to try to lose fat, if your liver is burdened by even partial dehydration, it's just not going to do a very good job of helping you to you know, oxidize fat. So I've, I've noticed tremendously, even with getting into, say, ketosis, because I'm experimenting with that, more water I drink, the more I walk, uh, the better off I am, the faster I'll drop into, say, ketosis. Um, but uh, the, the other thing, just on your point with um, nuts and cheese, if, if I've, it seems like with almost any dish, if someone wants to impress a dinner guest, just put Parmesan and sliced almonds on anything and it looks really, <laughs> it looks really fancy and it tastes amazing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> on that note, uh, this is Will McClellan. Uh, <laughs> there may not be a best meal, but what's the best meal to impress a girl with, but is easy to make? <laughs> this is, I'm sure a question. This is guys have a phobia, a lot of guys of cooking in any capacity. So what would be a, uh, one meal that might impress a girl, but that is easy to make? That's funny. Uh, well, I was just talking to one of my best friends. Uh, in fact, that guy was with me in Vienna and, and, and he was telling me about, um, uh, a date he was on just yesterday and he was saying, Oh yeah, I cooked that risotto again. I, you know, he's like, man, you taught me that that one time. And I rode with that for the last 10 years. <laughs> uh, I think a risotto is a really good, very easy dish, uh, to make that, um, that you can do a lot of things with that seems very fancy and impressive, but isn't that hard. Uh, basic risotto is you start, you know, start with like an onion or a shallot. You cook that down, you cook your rice, you have a, a stock of some kind. So you can buy a nice chicken stock or veg, um, uh, seafood stock, depending on what you're going to put in there and make sure that's hot. And then you're just adding some stock as you go and you, oh, so, sorry, onions. And then you put the rice in, mix that around a little white wine and let that evaporate. And then you're just adding stock as you go until the rice is like done. You want it to be a little, you know, al dente. You want it to be a little, have a little tooth to it. So you don't want it mushy. Um, and then you just finish it with whatever you want. If you're going to have like some scallops in there, you can do a whole seafood thing. You can do a lamb risotto. You could, you can do a vegetable risotto. You can do anything you want. And it's hard to mess it up because you finish it with a little butter, some olive oil and a bunch of Parmesan cheese. So like, it's like hard to go wrong there. Um, and it's sort of one of those dishes that, uh, it's hard to make it perfect, but it's, it's, it's easy it's, to make it good. <laughs> easy to make it good. Uh, God, that's so true for so many things in life, right? Um, so, so I want to get a little granular on this because I'd actually like to try to make it this weekend. So you, sure. you, you take the onions or the shallots. Those are uh, pretty thinly sliced, right? Um, yeah, you want to dice those up. Dice so you, those up. You, you want to make them you know, very small dice, like a mince. Yeah. Got it. And then you throw that in the pan or pot, I guess, pot in this case, uh, with some like olive oil and you just... Uh, would you have olive oil? Would you would you have some type of oil in there to start with? Yep, yep. So you have some olive oil. You put that in. You cook it a little bit. Um, then you put in your rice, and you know you depending on how many people you have, you know, cup cup to two cups. You know, if you're not doing a ton, you know, a cup of rice should probably be enough if it's two. Will will be enough if it's two people. Then you cook that a little bit, get that covered and coated, and then you add you know a bit of of white wine. Now the uh, stock is the stock already in there. The stock's not in there. The stock should be in a separate separate pot, and it should you should it should be hot. You should bring that to a boil and keep that warm. Got it. Um, okay, so onions. Then you cook that down. Let it kind of car- caramelize a little bit. 
Uh, no, actually, no. you don't want color on it. You yeah. don't want color. Okay. No. And then no. you then you add the rice. Then you add. So you have a cup of of rice. How much white wine would you put in there? Yeah, I'm not a you know I'm not a great recipe guy. Like you just want to get a nice like couple splashes in there. Like yeah, no, that's fine. I don't know, yeah. maybe like a a quarter cup. Okay. Um, at the most, and then you you cook that down. So you want when you when you know you're you want to get rid of all the alcohol. Mm-hmm. So you know that like when you lean over the pot and you kind of put the what's evaporating kind of you you put your nose over that if it kind of burns the inside of your nose you know that there's still alcohol burning off and like once that sort of burning sensation comes and it's just like "Mm, okay it smells good then you know you're you're ready to go it should be pretty dry it should be dry basically um before you then start adding your stock got it and then how long once you add the stock is the this sort of cocktail is it on like a medium heat or what's the heat yeah, so you want it to be a nice simmer, um, uncovered simmer, and you only use a wooden spoon because you don't want to damage the rice, and you only want to use a boreal rice, really important, uh, which is a nice starchy rice. So you'll get a good, a nice starchy kind of uh, broth. And so when you, so yeah, so you, so you just add the the stock as you go. So you cook it, you know, it'll start absorbing. You realize, okay, I'll need some more. You start absorbing. You keep adding. And now if you run out of stock, you can finish with water, no problem. Um, uh, you know, you want to heat the water up. You don't want to put in a cold liquid into your risotto because that stops all the cooking process and can start breaking down the rice over if you do that too much. I like um, this idea. I'm going to try this this weekend because it seems like you could also, for instance, with like scallops, which are so deceptively easy to cook, yeah. you can kind of muck around with the risotto. And if you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants and half screwing it up since the scallops only take whatever, you know, four minutes, two minutes to cook. Um, you can kind of do it last minute and just drop them in. Yeah. So for like, if you're using the base scallops, the little guys, like basically when your risotto is basically done or just, you you put them in, you just give it a stir and you turn it off and like, they'll basically cook through, uh, just as it settles. Cause you want, you'll want, so at the end, so you cook it, it's getting close. At the, whenever you're done, so like when it's basically done, then you put in your Parmesan, you put in some butter, you put in a little olive oil, and you give that a good stir. You're going to want to let it just rest for a minute, and it'll kind of come together. If it dries up, like when you put it on the plate, you want it to just kind of relax onto the plate. Like you don't want to hold up in kind of a ball. You don't want it to run either. So you may need to add a little stock to make it, you know, it should feel like it's got a little sauce, but it's not saucy, Right. And, but then you can literally add whatever you want, any kind of herbs, any flavor profile that you like. Like if I love basil, asparagus, and, uh, and zucchini, I can add that at the end, let that basically warm up, and you guys just have a beautiful um, risotto. If you're doing scallops, I love like a lemon seafood risotto. So you can add a bunch of lemon juice, a ton of lemon zest, like lots of lemon zest, maybe a squeeze of a lemon, and say shrimp and scallops. And, and tarragon is a great herb for that one. Killer risotto. So you can, that one will impress any, any lady, um, whoever, whoever asked that. <laughs> I'm going to try that this Saturday. Uh, question from Kerry Kaminsky. Uh, what dish have you most frequently made for house guests? Wow. Most dish, most frequently made. I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. I mean, I love the grill. I'm a, just a grill freak. It's super simple, less dishes, uh, and biggest flavor. So I throw, like, when it's warm, I throw everything on the grill. I grill all the vegetables. 
Like I, I we grow eggplant, we grow uh, like rapini, we grow peppers, zucchini. I just, it just all goes up there. And it's a really healthy way to cook because you're using very little. You don't need much. You know, there's no heavy fats or anything. Um, and I've been doing pork chops up there, some steak, um, even pieces of fish, depending on what it is, shrimp. So I don't know. I just, I just try to keep it fun and simple. I think the, the one thing is, this actually kind of reminds me, I think the one other difference between home cooks and, and pros is this just acidity level. Like at, when you think it's ready, like add another lemon. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Like we always, like pros bump up the, the, the acidity level, which is what is like one of the secrets. like one of the secrets. Just we add a little more acid and it makes everything taste better. Yeah. It, seem, um, it seems like pros use lemon juices as they might use salt a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the mistakes that people make with grilling? Um, what do they make with grilling? One, the grill's not hot, so they end up not getting very good color. Um, two, I think that's the, that's the main mistake. Um, I think, uh, they also like play with food too. Like when you throw it on there, like let it go, let it get that nice color. And before you start moving around, um, and, um, you know, I think grills are best when you get the sear, but like if you're doing a piece of meat or even a piece of fish, letting it finish in the oven, even just for a minute or two, depending on how big your piece of, of, of meat is, is the best way to do it because it, it'll cook more evenly. A lot of times if you're using a really hot grill, you'll get like a lot of well done and then like a little bit of rare or medium rare in the middle, but like the sides will be super dry and tough. So if you get a really hot grill, get a great sear, you lock the flavor, and then you finish in the oven, and it's always the best way to do it. Yeah, to to avoid the black and blue steak. Yeah. Uh, next question is from Daniel Lawhon. Uh, what is the best way to systematically develop and refine your palate? And I'll, hmm. I'll just I'll modify that and say what is what is one simple way to start systematically developing and refining your palate? Wow. That's an interesting question. I've never, ta- I've never, I've never been asked that. I, I think, um, I think basically just tasting everything you possibly can and really tasting it, like thinking about it, like breaking down the flavor and just paying attention to it. Um, smelling things. So smell is a really uh, fundamental part of taste way more than we realize. So I would, you know, make sure you're really smelling, touching and tasting as much as you possibly can. Eat at restaurants. Um, go to farmer's markets, um, try things out. And the more you taste, like the more you'll start understanding the, the subtleties and complexities. Um, like, I don't know, a, I, I don't know of a resource. I mean, that's just the way I learn is like cooking and tasting things. And that's the way most chefs learn. I don't know of a resource that's like a guide to palate development. Um, I'm sure there's something out there, but I don't, I don't know of it. Yeah. It's a, uh, it, this was a, this was a, a, a question I had to tackle for myself, uh, when I was attempting to learn to cook in the beginning. So I would, I would say to Daniel, a couple things really helped me. The first was, uh, going to restaurants, going to the same restaurant, say five days in a row. And maybe you can't do five days, but going there regularly enough on off days, like Tuesday to Thursday, uh, Monday to Thursday to get to know the staff. Um, always keeping the menu with you when you're eating so you can you can read along as you eat dishes so you know what's in it, like the five or six, seven ingredients, whatever it might be. Uh, smelling your food before you eat it 
<laughs> it looks kind of weird, but yeah. it's smelling food before you eat it. Cause I've, I've always had chronic, well, up until I started using, um, kind of sinus rinses, I had chronic sinusitis and I had a lot of trouble smelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, last thing would be for unfamiliar ingredients that are mixed into a dish. And this is part of the reason that you would go during the week, asking them to give you a little bit on the side so that you can taste it individually before yeah. you, uh, eat it in the mix. I found, and there's a, there's a fun book called the flavor Bible also that, oh, yeah, 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 it's that, a great book. that is a cool book. And a lot of chefs use that to come up with unusual flavor combinations. Next question is from Abe Diaz. Uh, if you had to pack the essence of life into a burrito, what would that burrito be like? <laughs> the essence of life into a burrito? Yeah. yeah. Uh, meaning like what would the ingredients be? Like yeah. The food yeah. ingredients? Yeah. Wow. All right. Here we go. Um, uh, okay. I think I would have – you'd have, um, uh, you know, you'd have some brown rice in there for like fortitude, sustenance for like you know, your grit and determination. Um, I would have, um, avocado, lots of avocado for like the richness of life, beauty, color, flavor, like excitement. I would have, um, what would be my protein? I would definitely have beans. Um, uh, I think beans are like the, you know, the seed, their growth, uh, and they, 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 they harness promise for me, hope, oppor- you know, opportunity, optimism. Um, I'd have a little, maybe a little skirt steak for strength and, um, but not a lot. Um, and I'd have a habanero salsa for like the spice, the excitement, uh, the, you know, so the in being vigorous, uh, part of what makes life so amazing. Um, and then maybe I'd let the chef throw in one other mystery ingredient, uh, to stimulate curiosity, which I think is, uh, the most important or underappreciated quality of, uh, of, of people who live great, successful, awesome lives, which is just, just like being curious about the world around them. So I, I let the, I let the chef Throw a mystery, a mystery ingredient in there. How's that? I love it. It looks like, <laughs> looks like my cheat day on Saturday is going to be ris- risotto and burritos, among other things. Uh, if, uh, if just, uh, two more questions. Uh, this is, this is really fun and, uh, people can certainly, uh, let us know if, if they want more, more Sam. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will. The, the two, two more questions for you. The, the first is if you could give your, Let's just say, uh, give yourself advice when you were just graduating from UChicago. Mm-hmm. What advice would that be? Um, wow, that's a great question. Um, well, if I would have given myself advice when I graduated from when I went in, <laughs> I would have said, study a little harder, you know, uh, work a little harder. But I, when, I, when I left, I mean, I, th- I think the advice that I um, – that, uh, that I live by, which it kind of holds, which is basically get out there in the world, be open to it, explore it, um, uh, be, don't, don't, don't worry about having a, a, a clear plan because I didn't know enough to have a clear plan. 
um, and you know follow things that I really cared about and 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 go all in when I when I found something that that interests me because passion like passion is an overstated word I mean I think passion develops so like I was really into food and, and, and was interested in it um, and I threw myself into into food but I I it didn't become a passion till I can you know really combine although I was like passionate about it it wasn't a life passion until I can like combined, you know, food and nourishment with health and sustainability and politics and policy and what we're doing to really help make sure that all people can live healthy, productive, you know, awesome lives through the food that they're eating. Like that's what sort of became that, that passion. So I think a lot of people are like, find your passion. I think passion comes from a combination of being open, curious of really going all in when you find something that, um, that you're interested in. Um, then, then that, then that goes. And I, and I think always just trying to figure out how to do the right thing, you know, trying to remember why you're doing what you're doing, um, is, are, are kind of the lessons that I've tried to live by. And, and, and they've, they've served well on the, you know, getting out in the world gives you a perspective on, uh, wherever you are that I found to be transformative and, um, and just a foundation of, of, of who I am. So, um, it's been, uh, it's been good. No, I, I, I really want to underscore something you said that I think is really important, and that is just related to finding your passion. A lot of people ask me, how, do, how can I find my passion? And I think that in their mind, they see this singular thing that is this lightning bolt that knocks them off their feet. And in my case, just like you, it was an unexpected combination of things that came together by trying a lot of things and being not having, in my case, I didn't have like a five or 10 year plan. Right. It was, uh, I will do the best I can at this, this next gig, whatever that is, and look for doors that open. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I, I don't want people to think, to feel like, and I've seen people reflect this, feel like a failure because they, they haven't had a single activity yeah. hit them like a, you know, Cupidero or whatever. Um, what, if you could make one ask of the people listening to this, what would that ask be? Oh, great question. Um, what would be my one ask? I think my one ask would just be to, um, to be engaged. I think right now uh, we're, we're suffering from lack of engagement uh, uh, around some of the issues that really matter. And, you know, there's lots of solutions. There's lots of different ways to think about it, particularly in food. I think, you know, there's, you know, there's nothing more important than making sure our kids are getting food. I mean, we have so many hungry kids in, in, in the country. We're wasting so much food. We're not getting enough nourishing food. In the face of climate change, there's going to be, it's going to be even harder to grow healthy food and produce it at an affordable, uh, at an affordable price for people. So the challenges are higher. And, and while we're so, I mean, so engaging and caring and trying to improve the food system through the choices that we're making every day, is a start, and I think for people who really get into it, it's starting to translate that into in, into politics and actually caring about um, these issues in terms of who's representing us in Washington. And I think that's a um, the politicians follow the people, uh, and businesses follow the people. Like they try to like shape decisions and they market, et cetera. But in the end, they're following. And so we need to lead and then we're leading every single day in ways that sometimes we're aware of and sometimes that we're not. And so I think that kind of awareness and engagement can have a profound impact on what companies are producing and what policies are being made. So I think 
um, th- that's my big ask, at least in my in my world. But the truth is that that kind of same uh, same principle applies to just about any issue. Um, and I think um, we just the more we're engaged, the 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 more our democracy works. Agreed. Yeah, give a damn, people. Don't be apathetic. Find <laughs> yeah. find something to get get excited about uh, and care about. Uh, Sam, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, where can people find you on uh, Twitter? I guess you're at Chef Sam Cass. Yep, yep. At, at Chef Sam Cass. Um, Instagram is Sam Cass DC. Um, Facebook, to be honest with you, I said that up so long ago, I don't even know what my name is. I have to look that up. <laughs> I got to get on that, Tim. You're the master of this. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, I'm fumbling my way through all the uh, all of the interwebs one day at a time. Uh, do you have a website where, where people can, can also check you out? Um, no, not yet. That is in the works. In process. Uh, we'll, in process. I will, I will share that with people when it is ready for, for, its, for its big debut. Yeah. Uh, Sam, well, this is, this is great. I really enjoy hanging out. This was a lot of fun. And uh, for people listening, you can check out the links to resources, books mentioned, etc., cetera, uh, in the show notes. And those show notes and the show notes for every other uh, podcast are just at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Uh, but Sam, thank you so much for the time. Tim, it's been awesome, man. You're, you're, you're the best and you're, you're helping people live better lives. And it's, it, was, uh, it was an honor to be here with you, man. Thanks, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye.